You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thank you very much for joining us today. The Doctor's Lounge is brought to you live every Thursday morning on America's Web Radio and by podcast to almost 20,000 listeners per month. And we thank you, our listening audience, for your support. Um, The Doctor's Lounge is sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, a 501c3 organization. We are devoted to the education of physicians and patients, the empowerment of physicians and patients. We believe that the best care that can be delivered, true quality care, which is not what you hear about, but true quality of care exists when a doctor and a patient are free to make decisions on behalf of that patient without the interference of any third party, such as insurance companies, hospitals, healthcare networks, bureaucrats, legislators, and the like. And uh, today our topic is uh, going to be an article uh, that was published in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago. And to help me discuss that article, we have special guest Chris Held, Dr. Chris Held. She is a practicing ophthalmologist from Texas, uh, like many of us. She is a a leading thinker and writer and speaker on the subjects of healthcare policy and all of the issues that have come to light in these past few years. Um, She is the co-founder of an organization called American Doctors for Truth. Um, She is on the board of directors of uh, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. And I think most interestingly, Chris, um, that that you have gone third-party free uh, in a specialty ophthalmology that that has to be particularly challenging um, for the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me today, Mike. I'm really happy to talk to you about all this. And it is it has been challenging because as an ophthalmologist, the number one uh, operation that I perform is cataract surgery, and that generally occurs in patients of Medicare age. So when I made the decision to go private contracted or opted out with Medicare, that was huge. Um, it was an easier decision to sever ties early with all the commercial insurances, but this has been a really big um, undertaking. I did this on October 1st of 2015, and I must tell you, I am so happy. I'm so thankful I did it. I'm so grateful for my patients that continue to see me and understand what's going on, and I feel so kind of free and clean almost of all of this um, government intrusion and insurance company intrusion into the very, very important and sacred patient-physician relationship. So it's going to be fun to talk about all this with you, and I think we'll tie it all together at the end, and hopefully people will um, be encouraged and um, learn something. Indeed, we could do a whole show on that because I think you know a lot of doctors, myself included, look at that and go, "Wow, I don't, I don't know how you make that leap and you know get enough patient volume of, of folks that are that, that that can pay for it without a third party." But uh, we'll we'll leave that chat to another time or maybe some some time at the end. But uh, uh, I guess our assigned topic for the day is this very interesting article that was published in the Wall Street Journal by one of the architects of Obamacare, one uh, Bob Coker, and I'll just take pass the baton to you and let you tell everybody about it. Well, um, so Bob Coker um, was the only physician on the National Economic Council 
when Obama came to the White House, and he was the primary person then that was advising President Obama on health care policy. And as we all know, the minute that uh, President Obama opened the front door to the White House, he wanted to begin his trek towards a health, national health care law. And ultimately, you know, he wants single-payer socialized medicine, and we have all seen the tapes of that that say, this will come, we just need to be patient. And so really what they did was they built on all of the kind of health care infrastructure that had been started by the Clintons, um, particularly Hillary Clinton back in the early 90s when she was kind of touted as the first lady whose mission was to take on health care. And so the Bob Coker was really in the front seat of what's going on. And, you know, many, one of the things in our complaints about what happened in healthcare is that doctors did not only not have a seat at the table, but we were served for dinner. And everyone else had great input into creating the Affordable Care Act from big insurance companies and pharmaceutical and hospital and government people, but not doctors. So here's Bob, the doctor. And so he was very instrumental in the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And lo and behold, here he came out in a July 31st article saying how I was wrong about Obamacare. So this was quite a eyebrow-raising article. And if you look at it, um, there's some very important things in it. Now, I will say that one of the things that has come out in Physicians have got to know about the macro law. And the macro law was passed a year ago with bipartisan support as the, under the guise of it is the big SGR repeal. Really, it's pretty much of a Trojan horse for uh, government control of medicine and expansion of government control and control of CMS, Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services, to all patients all data, and all um, in all patients, because not just Medicare anymore, but oh, also right. commercially insured patients. Oh, yeah. And, and one and, of the and, ways you know, We've that, discussed this uh, on the show in the past, but we do need to repeat it again, because I, I just gave a lecture on this at one of our state society meetings, mm-hmm. and it's amazing um, how little attention is paid to this outside folks like you and I that make it our business to know this. Well, um, it, it, but it was shocking. They, I mean, it, they didn't know a thing about what was in it. I will say to their credit that the level of interest was very high once I presented it all. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right, Chris. I mean, this was this was a law that was passed when you know all of organized medicine drank the Kool Aid on the SGR part of this, just like you said, yes. and didn't pay attention to the rest. Well, they really didn't. And, and, you know, the SGR repeal was page one, and they took out SGR and threw something just so far worse. It, it's just beyond the pale. But um, so in this article, one of the, and, and so the reason I bring up MACRA is a big, huge component of MACRA is consolidation of physician practices into big groups called ACOs. Yes. And... Um, there's two ways that physicians, they want to change the entire way that payment for health care is made. And that's taking us away from being independent practitioners to being paid in these big groups by these new alternative payment models via capitated 
the government's kind of and insurance companies are going to kind of dole out lump sums of money to groups that will then disperse the money to physicians and other clinicians based on government rubrics and scores. And so while if you look at the macro law, there's a very infamous chart in there that shows how in smaller practices, 87% of physicians in smaller practices are going to be harmed by this. And if you look at Texas alone, over 60% of physicians practice in one, two, or three-member groups. So think about that. 87% of practices in Texas are going to be hurt. So what's that, what's that going to do for patients? So here, Bob, who was very instrumental in saying, yes, we need to consolidate doctors and hospitals into large groups, all of a sudden what he says is, I was wrong, and really the smaller practitioners, the independent primary yes. care doctors, the small practices are actually better and more effective. And we've all known this. We've been preaching this for years, If I, unless I've gone insane and I'm hallucinating this. I mean, we've been talking about this since 2009. Absolutely, because we know our patients. We are on the front lines. We are able to make decisions immediately without having to go to groups and committees and attorneys and rules. We can make decisions. We know the patients. We make things happen. And, um, in fact, one of the things I did when I was visiting with um, Andy Slavitt and his MACRA team, I yes. invited them down to San Antonio. I wish they would come and come spend a few days with me in my office doing direct patient care, directed with my patients, seeing patients from all walks of life, every socioeconomic status, from non-insured to doesn't even matter, they don't even need to be insured, providing highest quality of care, latest innovation, including laser cataract surgery, at the lowest cost. And, you know, I'm able to do, and I, and I invited them down, I wish they'd come, and I gave them examples of, of laser procedures, surgical procedures that I'm doing in my office at a fraction of the cost, literally saving taxpayers hundreds of dollars per procedure and, and, and magnify that to a larger scale. So I think if they came, they'd, they'd learn a lot. They'd see that without all of these levels of intermediaries um, that are sucking out money and all of these, um, you know, games that we're playing to score, et cetera, that we can provide the highest quality of care to our patients, preserving the patient-physician relationship at the lowest cost. So I was really just almost elated when I met this art, read this article that uh, Bob had written saying, you know, I think we were wrong and we need to stop and we need to protect a little bit the um, smaller practitioner. And they need to do that because, as I mentioned, in Texas alone, we take – think about that. That's over 60% of the practices. What are they going to do if we don't exist anymore. Well, and, and it, it even goes deeper than that, Chris, right? Because, you know, th there is that, you know, famous Table 64, which yes. in congressional testimony, Andy Slavitt kind of soft-pedaled and said, well, that's 2014 data. Things are getting better for the small practices. They're starting to report more. But the part that they don't want you to figure out is that the system is mathematically rigged yes. because it's graded on a curve. And yes. so there have to be enough 
penalties to finance the bonuses. So all of those small practices in Texas, it doesn't matter how much money they spend on consultants, IT help, all this kind of stuff to actually get their MIPS macro performance score as high as they can get it, but they're going to lose to the big practices because, and it's graded on a curve. It's like your eccentric professor from college who in a class of 20 students said the best student will get an A and the worst student will get an F. I don't care how smart everybody is or how dumb everybody is. That's the way it's going to be. And so the small practices are, are, are dead on arrival. There's just no Well, they really are dead on arrival. And what bothers me about it is that they have this, this attempt to allay our worries by saying, okay, we're going to provide you small practices money and technological assistance. Well, you know... 30 saying, seconds to the end of the segment, Chris. Go ahead. Okay. And so if you look at that, they say that they're going to have $100 million in assistance to small practices of less than 15. Well, if you take $100 million over five years, that's $20 million a year. If you look at that Table 64 and divide it by the overhead $700,000 700, eligible clinicians, that comes out to about $26 a person per year. If you just look at the small practices of less than 10, that comes to $88 a year. I really don't think $88 a year is going to help me bring up an extensive EHR system and do all this reporting. So it's a false uh, premise that they tell us. It's a token and and not much more. We've reached the end of segment one. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Dr. Chris Held. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for staying with us. Uh, I have very special guest, Chris Held, uh, a practicing ophthalmologist from Texas, a leading writer and thinker on the board of directors of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, and most interestingly, a physician who no longer has to take insurance of any kind, including Medicare, for an ophthalmology practice, which is truly remarkable. And we are talking about an article that was written in the Wall Street Journal that really 
really got everyone's attention. It was written by one of the architects who designed Obamacare, one Bob Kosher, who uh, admits or appears to admit, as we're going to get to, uh, sort of a mea culpa uh, of sorts, saying that he was wrong about Obamacare and wrong about the assumptions um, and and tries to turn this into, uh, you know, kind of an altruistic uh, sort of thing. Um, and let's just hit a couple of quotes here, Chris, that I sort of came up with in this article, um, one of which is this quote that's saying, um, uh, you know, and this is, again, uh, Bob Kosher uh, talking, uh, that having every provider in healthcare owned, in, in quotes, owned by a single organization is more likely to be a barrier to better care. And I kind of looked at this and said, well, duh, this is another one of these things we've been talking about for years, don't you think? No, Absolutely. It, it's just more people in between the patient and the physician. And when you look at the structure of the ACOs, um, it's all based on perverse incentive, where the doctors and the um, hospitals or the ACO, the organization, is incentivized to spend less on the patient. And if you look at MACRA itself, there's a chart in there that shows that, for example, you get 10 points um, in if you spend on resource utilization. It, the doctors that spend the least on their patients get the most points. The doctors that spend the most on their patients get the least points. So it's a very perverse system. It rewards you and pays you to not take care of your patients. So we don't want to consolidate under that at all. Well, and even the early data on ACOs was an article published in the New England Journal, which is actually referenced by Kosher in this article um, that talks about uh, the early performance of ACOs. And, uh, you know, if there's any savings at all, it's, it's trivial. It's on the order of $100 per, uh, per beneficiary per year, which when you consider that the average cost of health care is $10,000 per person per year, you're looking at maybe a 1% savings um, at most. And some of the measurements weren't even statistically significant. And that's the same article that came out and said independent ACOs were doing better than, uh, you know, organized or, or, you know, large institutional um, ACOs. They um, are. And, you know, think about it. A lot of the ACOs that have been um, started up over the last several years had large uh, subsidies from government to start right. these out. And they still failed, and many failed. And so how are they going to succeed when, you know, who can't make a business succeed with $2 million a year? Right. All of a sudden, when that money's gone, then then reality sets in, and it's going to it's not going to um, succeed, and it certainly doesn't benefit patients. But what I think is so interesting is that he does allude to the fact that um, the ACOs run by a company called Allidaid. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, you know, that this company helps advise. You know, we were talking in the earlier segment about how they try to allay our worries of uh, us being forced out of business by government as physicians um, and by larger insurance companies uh, because they're going to give us help. And some of the ways they'll give us help is by these companies that can come in and, and help us comply and implement and thrive under Obamacare once they maybe tweak the rules a little bit. Well, it's kind of interesting if you look into that a little further, and you and I read this um, blog called Absolution by Dr. Coca and the um, healthcareblog.com, and, and very astutely what was pointed out there was that um, there may be a little conflict of interest going on. And, you know, 
Dr. Bob Coker, or Kosher, as we said, um, is a uh, invested in um, this Adelaide company, and this company uh, for helping physicians can get five hundred to thirty-five hundred dollars a month per physician practice. So, golly, that's that's a lot of um, money there. It looks like that uh, Dr. Bob could get by now being in this business that he's invested in. Well, and this is something that that I have objected to in the health IT space ever since Meaningful Use came along in, you know, 2008, 2009, uh, and that is that, you know, there's this racket set up that basically puts an intermediate layer between the regulations and the docs. So step one is CMS or whomever writes a set of regulations which is completely unintelligible to anyone, including, you know, very intelligent physicians with four years of college and four years of med school and, you know, between three and ten years of residency, you know, we're not dummies. And yet it is impossible for any of us to read these regulations and actually implement them on their own, which forces the creation. And it happens in health IT and it happens just like you're talking about with this company who sort of is going to advise us out of the goodness of their hearts to, you know, help us stay legal and stay compliant. But what you end up with is this parasitic layer of consultants and advisors and assistants that take a huge amount of money out of healthcare. How much how much healthcare could we buy for people at ten thousand bucks a pop? How many people could we insure if we didn't have this creation of useless regulations which forces the creation of this layer of parasites that helps us comply with the regulations that don't need to be there in the first place. Well, precisely, and if you go back and look at MACRA again and the rule that they have, uh, that CMS has promulgated from the rules, there's multiple new layers of intermediaries created in there, and all of them tie back to these big data, collect, big data collection organizations. Right, the, registries. Um, it, yes, and so the Office of, uh, there's a thing called the ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, and that was actually created in the initial American Reinvestment Recovery Act in early '09. And that law, um, the ONC is very, very powerful over health information technology. And in MACRA, the proposed rule, they created these authorized certification bodies that they want to be able to come into the back door of your computer and, and collect all the data that they want without patient consent. And so when you look at this whole new brokering of data, buying, selling, and they want to be able to create that, collect that data, they actually had the Office of Civil Rights say, well, that's okay because they're a healthcare entity and you can do it. They're saying that they're doing it under the need to do surveillance. So we got something here called the, the, the fox asks the coyote if it's okay if he guards the hen house, and the coyote yes. says yes. I mean, it's a classic conflict of interest. It's a issue. classic conflict of interest. So then you have to have all of these um, you know, qualified clinical data registries. So you now have to have somebody collect the data. Then you have to have a government entity saying, well, we have to do surveillance on that. And then you have to have uh, the CMS say, now you have to save all that patient data for 10 years or maybe forever for us to look at it. And so now we have a big mess going on. So you can see why we'd want to have to hire another company, a whole other company, to come in and help us do that. And what's really interesting, talking about the conflict of interest, if you go back and look at one of the initial, you know, um, health information technology czars, uh, Dr. Farzad Motashari, oh, yeah. 
he works with Dr. Coker, and they there's a, a company called Venrock, and yes. Venrock raised $35 million to help finance the Adelaide. And I remember reading about um, Dr. Motoshari. Um, I listened to a Medscape interview with him years ago, and I was quite struck with him basically telling physicians, implement and comply, implement and comply, and this is what you do. And now that he's left the post with government and is in private venture, now he wants us to all and come have him help us comply with the with the perverse laws that he created in the first place. So, you know, it's really a um, it, it's a very nonsensical and perverse waste of money, waste of resources, waste of energy, and and physicians are fortunately like me. I read about this and I study it as you do, Mike. But I can go to bed at a clean conscience because I'm not going to play the game. Well, that's pretty sweet. Uh, you know, that's uh, and, and it's uh, ironically, I was discussing that with our practice administrator today because, uh, you know, I, of course, I talk to her every day and, and we talk about all this stuff and how to implement it in our practice, all this regulatory stuff. And she finally looked at me today, not four or five hours ago, and said, is this really worth it? I mean, this completely occupies her time. And she finally ventured the option to me to say, you know, how about we just forget about all this? Let's just take our, our full 9% hit and, you know, we'll save that money twice over just not having to, you know, be constantly, you know, nobody can innovate. It sucks all the oxygen out of the room. We can't do neat things for our patients because we're too busy worrying about if we have enough measures and whether or not we have to ask about, you know, fall risk and depression and guns in the home and all this kind of stuff that is not relevant to the practice of ear, nose, and throat medicine. And, um, yeah, I mean, even if you're not opting out completely, and, boy, I wish we all could like you have, but uh, even short of that, just the idea of saying, okay, you know, you want to take 9% out of my hide, fine. Uh, you right. know, it's worse than all this other stuff. And, and I think, you know, whenever this thing goes live, I think we're going to see a lot of that. I think we're going to see a lot of it. And, you know, the new president of the AMA he had a lot of gumption. He's a solo practitioner, hand surgeon, and he said, I'm not going to EHR. I'm not going to comply with this. I'm going to take the penalty. And he said that in his inaugural address in front of the AMA. Now, the problem is, you know, it is a 9% hit ultimately, but if you, when you do what you said and you look at the curve, those who completely comply with the government rubric are going to get a 9.9% bonus. So it comes out to be a 19% difference. So if you look at the physicians that want to focus, instead of on implement and comply with government, innovation and create and take care of patients, we'll be getting 20% less. We're going to eventually go out of business, and so the government will have its dream. It will be left with the people that do what they say, and what's very, very sad is eventually this results in rationing and denial of care for patients. And if you look at, for example, the we've been talking about the incestuous nature of what's going on. Well, where did Mr. Slavitt come from? And I do really thank him for allowing me to come there and plead the case for the small practice and our patients. Yep. And, and in his defense, you know, he was a guest on our show here about two months ago as well. So he is, 
he does have some guts to be out there and be the face and the name, you know, behind this law and, you know, take all the, the heat that's getting thrown by, you know, folks like me and you, right? But right, and he does. And I love the interview, and I listened to it, and I thanked him for doing that interview when I spoke with him. But, you know, his background, he went to Harvard and then Wharton. He's an insurance guy. He's a big business guy. He came from, guess what? United Healthcare. He came from their Optum division, their big data division. So when he's looking at patients and he's looking at what we're creating, he's looking at from the insurance data collection side. He doesn't know what it's like to be a patient. And, I mean, he may, a patient he may, but not to be a physician, Correct. not to engage in the physician-patient relationship like we do. We went into this because we love the patient. We want to take care of them. We want to provide them the best care. We don't look at them as a data point. Indeed. We've reached the end of the segment. We'll pick you up uh, mid-sentence here. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Dr. Chris Held. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, Segment 3. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Thanks very much for listening to us today. Uh, I have with me special guest, Dr. Chris Held, uh, a practicing ophthalmologist in Texas who is doing what we all wish we could do, which is to cast insurance aside and uh, be able to take care of our patients unfettered by regulations and third-party interference and all of the nastiness that goes on with that. And uh, we are talking about, uh, we're having a conversation inspired by... uh, Uh, This article published in the Wall Street Journal um, on July 31st by one of the architects of Obamacare, Bob Coker, the only physician who was on the design team for this back in 2008. And he came out with sort of a mea culpa article of sorts entitled, How I Was Wrong about Obamacare. It was a rather eyebrow-raising article coming from one of its architects. And so Dr. Held and I have been having this conversation here on the on the radio today. Uh, and Chris, I wanted, before we sort of left some of the topics of the second segment, I wanted to sort of close uh, the loop on a couple of things. And one of them was, uh, you know, a, a point that you astutely raised uh, regarding macro, which if you don't know, and you're, if you're a physician or a patient and you don't know what macro is, you need to learn, especially if you are a Medicare patient, because this will profoundly affect 
how your physician is paid to take care of Medicare patients and therefore profoundly affect how that doctor has to practice medicine on you. And one of the things that we sort of touched on briefly, and I want to make sure we flesh this out, has to do with this little piece of the law of the proposed rule that came out in late April, uh, and, and that is um, the part that says that CMS or its representative can get backdoor access to your doctor's EMR, including access to patient records, including access to non-Medicare patient records. And what that means, if you are a patient, if you go to a physician who uses an EMR, and it doesn't matter what your insurance is, Blues, Humana, whatever, even self-pay, and that doctor is using EMR, and that doctor is seeing Medicare patients, the federal government can audit your medical records without your knowledge, without your consent, and you know what little privacy is left, Chris, in, in medicine has will pretty much go out the window if this law is implemented as proposed. Well, that's correct. There will be no privacy whatsoever. And the, um, they, wanna, they say that they need to be able to have access to do surveillance to be able to make sure that this um, data, is, data collection is accurate and that the computer systems are working properly. But literally, this um, Office of National Coordinator for Health Information Technology must not be granted unrestricted access to our certified EHR technology because they can get without permission from the patient and without permission from the doctor if they're a member of, an, of a huge um, alternative payment model, individually identifiable protected health information. Now, what is protected health information? That's all of your demographics. That's your past medical history. Um, it's your, all the meds you've been on, any treatment you're going to have. And if we look at the vast amount of agencies that are going to have be interacting with CMS um, through the MACRA law and through the Affordable Care Act, and you think that there are 90,000 IRS agents, and you think that worldwide there are innumerable hackers and leakers and ransomware people, this data is going to be fraught for um, potential, fraught with potential for problems. And we as the physicians are the custodians of this data. And then so you've got on one side, you've got the ONC that says we want to come in and we want you. Oh, and physicians must attest that we are not blocking their data. Oh, yeah, that's a whole other issue, yes. A whole other issue, bidirectional, interoperable. We cannot block it, and they need to be able to be able to come in our offices and inspect it at the site of production. Well, so, or, or or hack your system in the middle of the night right. uh, to and, and just pull all those records and you won't even know it. You might not know it for months or years because the way it's going to work is that, you know, remember the government certifies these records with the vendors, right? So there's all this activity going on between CMS and the, the vendors or CMS's surrogate and the yeah. vendors to certify these systems. So what's going to happen under MACRA is one of the requirements for certification will be that there is an open port on the back door of your EMR yeah. system 
where the government's going to tap in and do all this stuff. Uh, and the problem, as you just mentioned, is you know if the government can get in, who else can get in? I mean, we know the government's horrible at security, you know, and in fact nobody's right. actually good at it. I mean, things get hacked all the time. Right. So you know, if 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 the government can get into that open port, you know, so can WikiLeaks and you know the Russians exactly. and who el- who else? Well, they want to have us leave it open at all times as they need to get in. And, you know, they want to be able to input data, like what we can and can't do with our patients, and that's the next thing we need to touch on. And then, then besides the ONC, then the CMS says, well, then we've got to audit. You know, the ONC is going to be auditing the on one end, and then CMS has to come back and audit that the data collecting people are doing things right. So they will have to keep our records for 10 years, and with 30-day notice, because the rule, CMS can say, I want anybody, they can target a specific chart and say, we want it kept forever. And so who do they not trust? Do they not trust the doctors? I trust the doctors. I don't necessarily trust all of these intermediaries and other people just adding layers of waste and intrusion and money and potential for risk and fraud. So the, the American people know this, and I think if they find out what the government has proposed, um, this this data grab makes you know the NSA and the IRS look like Cub Scouts. Oh yeah, and and, and the, the patients will there there will be massive outcry for this. And, and, the, and the thing is, they have expanded it to not just, as we mentioned, not just Medicare patients. They've created these models called all-payer and other-payer. So it's, and it's not just the MIPS data, you know, the merit-based incentive plan, payment system data that we have to collect. These data entities can collect other measures. So they can collect any data they want that the Secretary of Health and Human Services improves on any patients commercially insured or not Medicare, or Medicare, the only people protected are, that aren't subject to this are Department of Defense and the VA. And they can do it at any time they want without the ability to block. And so this is just beyond, I believe it's a major Fourth uh, Amendment violation. I think it's a violation of the sacred patient-physician relationship, and I think it's, it, it needs to be challenged and it cannot go forward. Now, when you look at the MIPS data, think about this. This is ridiculous. They're going to, the whole thing is based on a false premise that they have to score physicians and use a carrot and stick to reward us to drive our behavior or to punish us if we don't do what they want. And so they're going to create this composite performance score from 0 to 100 in grade school fashion, and there's four categories that will be graded on. One of them is resource utilization. I touched on that earlier. They don't even need our permission to get they've got it. They know what we charge. They know what we do. The doctors that charge the least will get high points. The doctors that spend the most on their patients will get low points. And then they create these agencies and task forces in Obamacare, such as the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Now, why is that important? They come out with recommendations, and they say, oh, they're just recommendations. They're important because... Only things graded in A and a B will be paid for. So already they've come out and changed the indications to mammograms. They have given us the earliest diagnosis and longest survival rate in the world. They've changed the um, what, whether or not they're going to pay for prostate-specific antigens. Now they're looking at pelvic exams and skin screening exams. So not only will this harm patients, and we are seeing evidence of that now, but we're going to grade it. They're using these suggestions to create the measures that we are scored on. So part of our grade will be based on outcomes measures and these metrics that are improved. Some of them will be like 
Did you order too many PSAs? Did you order too many mammograms? Well, if you're a really good doctor and you ordered a lot and picked up a lot, they don't care. There's a certain cutoff that they want everyone to meet, and anyone that did more than that will get penalized, and anyone that did less will get rewarded. And so when you go online and you look up your doctor and you say, what's their grade? You'll look at their composite performance score. I also feel that this score is misleading and it's oppressive. I'm going to get a zero because I'm not reporting any of my data. I'm not doing any of this. I will be on there with a big fat zero like a red letter A. And Whereas another doctor who just comes in and clocks in the morning and their ACO, you know, garbage in, garbage out, their hospital enters in or does whatever they want, they're going to have 100. So physicians and patients need to realize what's going on. We need to stand up against the composite performance score. We need to stand up against the MIPS system, against the alternative payment models, the ACOs, the data collection, the violation of privacy, and we need to take back the practice of medicine, that we're, we're spending money directly on the patient, not wasting it on layers and layers and layers of a medical industrial complex that doesn't know what they're doing. And, you know, with the alternative payment models, the other things we touched on was the fact that you, in order to be deemed an, a, an alternative, an advanced alternative payment model and get paid under the system in a capitated fashion, you have to use EHR, you have to do a MIPS-based system of, of, and be scored, and you have to assume risk. Now, isn't that interesting? I know, Mike, that I didn't go to medical school and do my residency and internship to be an insurance company for my patients. No. I went to take care of them. So um, all of a sudden we've got like Mr. Slavitt, who came from United and their Optum division, wanting us to share risk with them. Now, that he also came from the Optum division that, guess what they do? They do the pharmacy benefits management. Yep. So that leads us into why we can hardly stand and can hardly take care of our patients anymore, because the, these Companies, for example, United Healthcare, and I'm just using them as an example because they're the one that will most likely be last man standing as single payer. Um, they get subsidies from the government to provide the health care for exchange plans. Well, how do you keep the money? If you're a business and you get money, how do you keep the money? By not paying it out. So it behooves them to delay and deny care. So therefore, they've created these entities called pharmacy benefit managers. And those are the companies that when you and I sit down with our patient one-on-one and say, this is what you've got, I'm going to write you this prescription for this drug that will cure you. The pharmacy benefits manager is a whole intermediary company between United Healthcare and us that says, no, you can't have that. They set up roadblocks to delay and deny so that the patient will either just go buy it or we'll give them samples or we'll do something else. And if they do that, even on a small scale, magnified by hundreds of thousands of patients, their profit is huge. You got about 15 you, seconds. Go ahead. And so if you look at United Healthcare saying they're losing money, but you look at their Optum division with their pharmacy benefits management, they're making money. 
Well, of course they are, and it's and it's because insurance isn't insurance anymore. It, it, it's a benefit plan. Uh, that's a whole other conversation for another day. We've reached the end of segment three. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Dr. Chris Held. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Mike Karuchak. Dr. Hal Schertz and I alternate weeks bringing you the best in healthcare policy on America's Web Radio every Thursday morning broadcast live and by podcast available on iTunes. Uh, this week we have very special guest, Dr. Chris Held, and we've been spending uh, the last 45 minutes talking about a, a very interesting article um, that raises uh, so many issues, and we were talking about you know, uh, Chris, how hard it is uh, to practice medicine now. And we were saying during the break, uh, you know, prescriptions aren't even prescriptions anymore. They're requests which can be denied. There's no more sanctity to a prescription or a doctor's order anymore. And it's kind of obviously affecting the practice of medicine overall. And it's also affecting um, what we tell our children about careers. Well, it really is. And, you know, the way that it, it affects patients is, is very, very sad and frustrating. You know, when we were trained, if a patient had a problem, we wanted to do what it took as expediently as possible to alleviate their suffering, to alleviate their pain, to get them taken care of. And now it's a whole nother mentality. It's like if your disc is ruptured and we need to get you to the OR, we could fix you and stop your pain immediately. But wait, we have to get a prior authorization. We have to get that approved. Or we could fix you, but wait, before we can take you to the OR, you have to try an injection. You have to try physical therapy. You, before I can put a patient on a medication, oh, you can't keep them on the medication that works. That's not on our formulary. Or, oh, you need to try a 
generic first, or they need to even, I've even had them tell me, uh, the insurance companies, that before I can prescribe a prescription allergy drop, the patient has to go and get two over-the-counter drops and submit receipts as proof that they tried them and failed. Receipts? Now that's a new one. I, yes, I, you know. as proof. And, that, and think about it, they're having to come in and have extra visits to right. say, yeah, you didn't do well on that. So the, it, it's a very ridiculous waste of time, energy, money, and I believe that it's unethical for me to sit there and watch my patients lose vision or suffer because I'm waiting for an insurance company to say, okay, we'll cover it. So, you know, now that I'm not um, having any agreements with insurance companies, I have time at the end of the day. I take it on to call them and challenge them for denying my patients the medications that will serve them well. And I think it's it's something that we have to hold them accountable for because if not, I think that they are these insurance companies are in denying care and denying meds are responsible for the patient's morbidity and mortality and suffering. And and we cannot ethically stand by and tolerate that as physicians. And so when we look going forward, you know, you and I have seen medicine change very dramatically. We went into it loving it. You know, when we were medical students, you know, we studied so hard and wanted to be the best, and we tried to have the best character and not be mistake, make mistakes in our lives and spend time in the hospital and in the ORs and on the wards. And now we're seeing medical students and residents and interns spending time going up and down the halls or in back rooms pushing computer carts, entering data points so that the hospital can get paid, learning ICD-10 codes, which are ridiculous, entering those in, instead of spending time examining the patients, talking to the patients, spending time in the OR. And it's just heartbreaking for me, particularly being you know, I grew up the daughter of a physician. My father was a neurosurgeon. He was a chairman of a program in San Antonio for 30 years. He trained residents. He felt and taught me that being a physician was the most humbling, most noble profession in the world, something that's taken so seriously that every patient you encountered was an individual human. You were their complete doctor. Um, it, it's the most important thing in your life. And I went into it loving that, knowing that, and as a result, I passed that on to my children. And as we talked earlier, my two oldest daughters are physicians. One's a physician in her third year of her residency, another one's a fourth-year medical student. And very sadly, most recently, my fourth daughter, I think, changed from pre-med to business because she has seen, watched what we're all enduring and what's going on and how heartbroken we are and how sad it is that we spend so much of our day fighting insurance companies, fighting for our patients. Everything's a battle. You know, we want to give you this drug that works, but the drug company, not the drug company, but the um, insurance company says, oh, well, that's not an approved FDA uh, reason to use that. So, Chris, let me ask you this now. You've got, you know, four kids spanning a fair number of years. First two went into medicine, last two didn't. Do Do you think that that happened because of random chance? Do you think it happened because of what they were passively watching you go through as a doc? Or did did what you were telling them change? 
Okay, so not so much what I was telling them, but I think what their older sisters were telling them. And oh, fra- in fact, okay, I didn't even think of that. Okay, go Yeah, ahead. in fact, the oldest one told the second one, don't go into it unless there is nothing else you can see yourself doing because um, it is so extremely hard. You want to be, okay, I was taught there's no room for mistakes. You want to do everything just right. Um, it's very hard work. And they see now uh, many of their peers instead of going to med school, becoming PAs. Um, it's yeah. two years instead of ten years. It's less debt instead of a lot of debt. It's less sacrifice. It's less responsibility. It's less liability. And if you look at the health care law and with the, um, what's happening, basically the, the PAs and nurse practitioners, they may be paid more and have less invested and so if you look at it from a business standpoint or a business model, it's very sad for the future of physicians and medicine and surgery. And um, I think this is what we have got, got to fix. We've got, you know, if you look at what the AMA is doing, they're rewriting our code of ethics. If you look at what they're doing with the MCAT, they're changing it from emphasis on chemistry, biology, and physics to adding sections on social and behavioral um, questions, which are obviously much more subjective. I think they're trying to select maybe a different kind of physician, one that's maybe more malleable and, and more uh, amenable to just following a government rubric. Um, I think they're trying to blur the lines between physicians and surgeons and non-physician providers. Um, I had a patient today that I got a uh, health care record from uh, who had had an eye problem out of state, and it was signed provider, so-and-so provider. So we looked up, and it was a superbly trained ophthalmic surgeon who'd done a fellowship, an MD fellowship trained, and it basically was a fill-in-a-blank that was, you know, Joe Blow provider. I didn't know if that was a tech or an optometrist or an ophthalmologist or what. And I think that that this is discouraging to spend your life uh, hours and hours and hours and sleepless nights and and the heartfelt responsibility that you have for your patients, it, it's somewhere along the lines of almost a parent-child relationship, but more than that. And I think only no, those of us who have really been through that rite of passage and know what it's like to operate on someone and, and take care of them post-op or be with them, it's something very deep. And when that is now being thrown in as a data point as a computer and trivialized and devalued, it's heartbreaking. And, you know, I must tell you, I was almost relieved when my youngest daughter told me, you know, Mom, I've switched out of pre-med and I'm going to, I'm going, I've transferred into the business school. And that's very sad. That's been a very change, a huge change in our lives, and I think it is very much secondary to the government and insurance takeover of medicine and oppression of physicians. Are the older two kids happy? Well, they're very happy with what they've chosen because they say, we love helping patients. And I asked each of them about that tonight. They said, we want to help patients, and that's why we went into this. But they said, it's, they, they, they told me, quote, unquote, they're really tired of the annoying crap. Yeah. You know, you that's the understatement home, of the year. It is. And you come home and you and my young associate, 
I have a young associate that's 37 with three boys at home, sole wage earner. She's a genius, valedictorian of her class, beautifully trained, and she finishes patients and spends hours entering in data into this computer. But I tell them, liberate yourselves. Don't do it. You hold that sacred knowledge. You love your patients. They will love you. Don't sign on. Don't enslave yourself to the meaningless nonsense. Don't enter the garbage in, garbage out. Stand on your own. Create a new way. Remain autonomous. Value the Hippocratic Oath. Be your patient's best advocate and doctor, a complete doctor. And we can fix this. And really, if all physicians would do that, this would be over in the blink of the eye. Because, you know, we can practice medicine without macra. Macra can't work without physicians. Well, that's the key. I mean, if we could just get ourselves together, you know, they need us way more than we need them, at least for the time being. But they're actively, you know, trying to squash that. And you kind of alluded to that, which is, you know, to sort of squash the traditional physician out of existence in favor of institutionally trained mid-levels, that kind of stuff. And I mean, and I don't mean to diss mid-levels because a traditional mid-level can be a tremendous asset to patient care, um, but that's not what's happening. Everybody in medicine now from physicians on down, as I understand it, is being trained to be sort of a drone, sort of, you know, a member of a team that is subservient to, you know, some sort of, you know, higher power that you don't ever see and don't ever hear and can't ever communicate with, but issues edicts that you must follow and that med students are being trained that this is somehow okay. Yes, and it is, and that it's, it's laudable and that this is what you do. And I agree. I'm not dissing the mid-levels at all. I work with many of them. I can't do what I do without them. They're superb. But, you know, if they had wanted to go to med school, they would have. And there's a certain level of the buck stops with us we're captain of the ship that we yes. take. You know, at some point, I'm not going to take responsibility for the screw-ups. I mean, I'm seeing patients come in. I'm like, wow, I didn't know this could look that bad. And it's someone who's been to, you know, an urgent care, an ER, you know, a non-physician, and finally they come to me, and I'm like, holy cow, now i got to fix this. And I think we are seeing suffering, and we are going to see a lot of morbidity and probably mortality that is needless because what they're doing, you know, is they're changing things. All of these models are untested. They're all experimental. That's right. And, and, and that's the thing. That's, and that, that is a complete, um, you know, disposing with the scientific method. Nobody even recognizes the scientific method anymore. No one says, I have a hypothesis tested on a small scale. If it works, gradually enlarge until, you know, you gain experience and confidence to implement big. Now we look at, you know, crappy data that's, you know, that, that has no value and say, hey, this is great. We're going to, you know, not only open this to the entire practice of medicine, every doctor, every patient, but force that practice of medicine on everyone. Um, we've reached the end of the hour. You have been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 